I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 22. Now, we're going to consider the first roughly two-thirds of this psalm today. Lord willing, we will consider the last third on Sunday. This is one of David's psalms. We don't know what part of his life, what episode might have prompted this song. Scholars are divided as to whether this was his description of what truly happened at some point in his life to him, his experience, or, or whether he was writing and speaking prophetically. Uh, I, I tend to think that given the way David wrote Psalms, he had a particular uh, incident in his mind. But regardless, the psalm ultimately is about Jesus, as we see from the very first verse. So we're going to, to read the first 21 verses, the first 21 verses of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered, they trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from my birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Amen. Amen indeed. Brothers and sisters, beloved of the Lord our God, through Jesus... This psalm is, to put it mildly, quite intense. It is David's psalm, written probably to reflect a time of struggle and distress, and yet it's not, or rather it is more. Because while there were times in David's life that were harsh, times of struggle and suffering, yet yet none of them seems to match the depth and the intensity of that which he describes here in this psalm. No, David was not merely writing about what he had experienced. This is not merely a 
autobiographical sketch, David was writing ultimately about one who would come later. His infinitely greater successor to the throne. David was writing, revealing, and proclaiming God's greatest servant. He was revealing that servant's suffering in the apex of its intensity so that we who would come later might understand the nature of that servant, the nature of his suffering, and the deliverance which that servant obtained for us in the midst of, through the means of that suffering. We must understand the suffering that is described in Psalm 22 because in that suffering, in that sorrow, in that strife is our salvation. And it's of that ultimately that David sang. The suffering that our Savior Jesus endured The sorrow and the grief that he experienced in the midst of that suffering and also how even in the midst of that suffering, even in the darkness which signified that God had turned his face from the sun, even then he looked to and trusted in the faithful Father who sent him. The suffering servant seeks our God in the valley of the shadow of death. That's the theme that we see in this psalm. The suffering servant seeks our God in the valley of the shadow of death. As we consider that theme, we're going to see that it's expressed in two parts. And we're going to begin by considering together the supreme suffering that he endures. But as you can see, if you look in your bulletin at the outline, this text is a bit unlike what we're accustomed to. Because normally we can see how the the theme that runs through the text is divided up into parts that each successively support that main theme, that main message. But here we see that there is a mingling. First the one theme and then the other. First this, then that. And that, that suits this psalm so exceptionally well because we find David speaking here and ultimately Jesus proclaiming here. First despair and then hope. First suffering and then faith. Going back and forth much as we might expect for someone who's dwelling in the midst of the shadow of death. So we're going to pick through and look at those sections that speak of his suffering, considering the supreme suffering he endures, first of all. David begins by describing the suffering of being forsaken by God. Right at the start, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we know that Jesus spoke that on the cross, quoting it in Aramaic. But those words began as a protest by David, speaking of the suffering that he endured. David complained that it seemed as though God had forsaken him, departing from his servant, allowing his his servant David to suffer the slings and arrows of men by his own strength. And the second half of that first verse, now most translations render it the way we see it here or similar to it, but if you notice, the New King James, our pew Bible, it has some words in italics. Those words in italics they're, they're in italics to, to indicate to us those aren't from the Hebrew. That's the translator's effort at making the most sense out of what he saw in the Hebrew. But it's fascinating if we read that second half of the verse without the italicized words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from helping me, the words of my groaning. I think that conveys what, what he's saying. 
He's so distraught, he's so surrounded by suffering that he's groaning, he's pouring out his heart in a way that words can't even express, and yet it doesn't seem to be helping. God doesn't seem to be responding. Nothing is changing. And so verse 2, My God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and I am not silent. He keeps crying out, and yet the Lord keeps not responding. What a deeply painful experience for a servant of God to, to endure. But all the more so, infinitely more so, when that servant is Jesus Christ. In Mark 15, we heard of Jesus in verse 34. He cried out at the ninth hour with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a cry of this psalm, pleading for God, confessing that, that he recognized that God had turned away from him, that the three hours of darkness he had just endured convinced him that God had turned away his favor and his presence, something that Jesus had never before experienced. The people mocked him. They knew what he was saying. He was speaking in Aramaic. That's what they all spoke. But they decided to turn it into a, a play on words so that they could mock him. Oh, he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah answers him. Let's see if Elijah will bring him down from the cross. And yet the plea that they were mocking was utterly true. Jesus was forsaken. God turned away from him. The father rejected his beloved son, not because Jesus did anything wrong, but because he was representing us who had done everything wrong. In his rejection alone could he pay the penalty for our sin, and because he did, God will never, ever, ever forsake us. Oh, there may be times when it, it feels like he has, when we can't see how he's working, but because of what Jesus endured, we can be absolutely certain that God will never forsake those who trust in Jesus. But that wasn't even the extent of his suffering. In verses 6 through 8, we see how he was mocked by men. Speaking through David, Jesus says, But I am a worm and no man. A worm. One who is regarded as weak and worthless. One who has no power to help himself. We see them on the sidewalks. They, they flee to the concrete to escape the, the watery earth only to find themselves stuck there and dried up into nothingness when the sun rises. David regarded himself as a worm. David did. When his son Absalom turned the whole nation against him and chased him out of the land of promise. Or perhaps when Saul chased him throughout the wilderness of Judah and finally forced him to take refuge among the Philistines. David regarded himself as a worm and yet David knew that he was a sinner. At least some of the suffering he endured he could attribute to his own misbehavior. Jesus had no such sin. He regarded himself as unworthy because of our sins which he bore. Jesus was, as Isaiah says, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because he was bearing our sin. 
And others regarded him as worthless also. They ridiculed him. They made faces at him. They mocked his faith. Verse 8, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. How their scorn, how their mockery of his divine identity must have cut him to the core. The hatred of those whom he had treated with love. The rejection of those whom he had come to reconcile. We get a taste of that when we experience the hatred of the world. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you also. And if by faith you are in Christ, they will hate you. But the absolute worst they can do to us is just the smallest, smallest, smallest taste of the hatred and the mockery that they wickedly cast upon Him. And for Jesus, there was even more. Verses 12 through 18 testify how he was utterly and completely devoured by wickedness. This section itself is divided in three parts. The first describes those who, who are doing the persecuting. He describes them as strong bulls of Bashan. Bashan was a region in the promised land that was known for its excellent pasturage. The cattle of Bashan were so well fed and so strong that it became a proverb. If something was exceedingly strong, it was as strong as a bull from Bashan. And he says, that's what those are like who surround me, who seek my downfall, who desire my destruction. They're absolutely, utterly unescapable. They're like a raging and roaring lion. There's no mercy in a lion. There's no conscience in a lion. They attack with utter and complete abandon, killing and destroying until they are exhausted by it. Now for David, that may have referred to the Philistines or to evil King Saul, but for Jesus, it was far worse. Because he was attacked, yes, by the enemies of God's people, by the Romans, but more so, he was attacked by the people of God themselves. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the crowd whom the leaders had stirred up who just a few days before had waved palm branches and said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. And now they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon our head and that of our children. How painful that must have been to be destroyed by the people whom you love, the people whom you chose, the people upon whom you had showered Infinite numbers of gifts. What betrayal. That was us. We were the ones who surrounded him. We were the ones whose sins nailed him to the tree. We were the ones for whom he died while we yet hated him, Romans 5. And as a result of the wickedness of those who attacked... He says, I am poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength has dried up. My tongue clings to my jaws. You brought me to the dust of death. Jesus was broken. And not merely by that torture device of the cross. Not merely by the beating and the flogging by the Romans. No, no. He was destroyed and melted and brought low by heartache, as he looked upon those whom he loved and saw hatred, as he looked for those who had walked with him and saw almost none of them, his heart was broken 
even as his body was bent and bruised by the cross. His enemies surrounded him like dogs, like wild dogs, closing in for the kill, piercing his hands and feet so he could not escape, gloating over his emaciated body, dividing his clothing. Have you ever thought about the suffering and the ugliness of that act? They stood before him and divided his clothing as a clear sign, you're never going to need these again. You won't leave here alive. We're going to take these now. Nothing can compare with what Jesus endured for our sake. Nothing. We may endure some struggles in life that seem, at the moment, tremendously difficult, and they will be for us. We may know sickness that brings us to utter despair or opposition from the enemies of God or worse, betrayal by those whom we love. But the absolute worst we might experience cannot bring us even to pierce the surface of that which Jesus endured for us. He did it for all of those whom God had entrusted to Him. For all of those who would be brought to trust in Him as their Savior. And therefore, we must trust completely in Him as our Savior. As the one whose supreme suffering alone can bring us blessing that lasts eternally. Think on this, brothers and sisters, as you partake of the supper this evening. And children, as you behold those elements pass by you. When that first tray comes through your hands. It is not merely bread. It is, by faith, the broken body of Christ. A physical representation of the physical flesh that was broken and torn and destroyed for our sake. A touchable, tasteable source of assurance that He endured everything that was necessary to free us from eternal suffering, to reconcile us to our Father above, and to give us peace without end. And that wine that you consume is not merely a taste of tradition. The wine received by faith is, as it were, the blood of our Savior. The reward for the mockery and scorn, the rejection and the betrayal that He willingly received. The wine is a sign, both of His suffering and also of the celebration that is to come. The celebration we all, through faith in Christ, can earnestly expect to partake of. So receive Receive what He offers by faith, by living faith in the One who suffered it all for you. And know that what Jesus earned for you ensures that you have peace and you have help and you have life everlasting from the faithful Father whom He serves. And that's the other point that we see here. The faithful Father whom He serves. Again, we see that point in three distinct parts of our text. It begins in verses 3-5 through as Jesus recalls the faithfulness of God. You are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Having expressed the isolation he feels, God's servant turns immediately to remind himself that God is holy. That is, that he is perfect in all his ways. There is nothing defiled. There is nothing broken. There is nothing lacking in our God. That's important. That's important because recognizing that God has now forsaken him, the temptation must be 
to doubt God, to turn away from God, even to curse Him for His abandonment. However, recalling God's holiness, first David and then Jesus Himself recall there is nothing other than goodness and uprightness and perfection in this God. And therefore, He can be trusted even when what our eyes see mitigates against that. Our forefathers understood that. They faced situations that, that seemed hopeless. But remembering that God is holy, that God is faithful, that God can always be trusted, they rested in Him despite what their eyes saw. They trusted, they cried out to God, and He answered with power. A promised child was born to those whose bodies should not have been able to bring forth a son. The sea was divided, providing escape for God's people and immediate death for the enemies who followed them. Cities filled with unbelieving armies were brought low without God's people raising a single hand. God's power is great and His plan is often surprising. So remembering that He is holy, God's people trust Him even when they can't understand the situation into which He has brought them. Remember Jesus before He went to the cross, He prayed, He pleaded with God, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. But remembering that His Father is holy, He rested in Him and He said, but Thy will be done. And not only is He holy, our God is near, prompting the psalmist to crave communion with God. David confesses, this God brought him from the womb and called him from the very start. Never had there been a time when God was not with him, providing for him, guiding him, orchestrating his life. And therefore David pleaded, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Now surely each one of us, if we're honest, each one of us could and should pray the very same prayer. There's never been a time when God has not been active in my life. Therefore, O God, be with me, guide me, bless me, protect me in this situation. But Jesus, Jesus prayed this with a unique vehemence, a unique vigor. Because He had been with the Father not from the womb, but from all of eternity. Never was there a time when He was not with the Father. Never was there an act that the Father commanded that the Son did not accomplish. When He came to earth as a man, He came at the command of God to do the will of the Father. Jesus perceived His dependence upon God the Father in a way that, that we can only scrape at, that we can only begin to perceive. So he pleaded at this time of forsakenness. He pleaded for God's strength, for his presence. And when God rejected his son who bore our sin, that was the deepest pit of the valley through which he had to travel. That was the darkest night that he ever had to endure. That was the approach of the reality that had led him to plead for any other way. However, the father knew that Jesus had to suffer, especially the rejection of God. Because if our sin was to be forgiven, that was the price that had to be paid. Because that is the essence of hell. That is the essence of the curse. To be cast off from the presence and from the blessings of God. And recognizing that wrenched from Jesus the agonized cry, But you, O Lord, be not far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. He piles on this imagery of 
hateful, strong enemies that seek to destroy and trample and tear. Pleading with the Father, come and save me and rescue me and give me your strength. God the Father alone consigned him to this suffering and therefore God the Father alone could deliver him from it. So Jesus confessed his confidence in God alone. Pleading, pleading for rescue by God. How desperately we need that example. Because although none of us will will endure suffering that even approaches what Jesus endured on the cross, nonetheless we will in this life, we will in this life face situations that we cannot endure on our own. Perhaps for you it will be persecution by unbelievers that threaten to ruin you. Maybe it will involve temptations to sin that you simply do not have the strength to resist. Worst of all, perhaps, it will be the betrayal of those whom you loved and who trusted, which threatens to utterly wreck you from within. Should you attempt to bear that pain and that struggle by the power that abides within you of yourself, well, you can't. And you won't. So call out after the example of Jesus. Call out in His name, but you, O Lord, be not far from me, O my strength. Hasten to help me, deliver me, because in Him alone hope is found. He alone can sustain you. He alone can deliver you. He alone can rescue His desperate servant. And especially so, when the help that you need, the deliverance that you crave, is deliverance from your own sin. Let every one of us recognize that we cannot deliver ourselves from our sin. That not one of us can rescue ourselves from the pit of the condemnation that we deserve. But if we cry out with Jesus, if we cry out after the example of the Savior, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. He will hear you. He will deliver you. He will bring you up out of that pit and not by anything you have done. There is hope, there is help, and there is life only if we pray with Jesus. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. And because of what Jesus did, He will. The most encouraging part of this text, the comfort that shines above every other word in this psalm, is the last line of verse 21. In the Hebrew, it's a single word. Anitani. One word, anitani. You have answered me. When David spoke it, it expressed confidence. Confidence that God heard his suffering, beheld his grief, listened to his plea for deliverance, and that that deliverance was on the way, that that God's help was at hand. And if that was David's confession when he prayed, how much more so, the Son of God himself. You have answered me, which Jesus expressed In the words of John 19, verse 30, it is finished. 
The price has been paid. The sacrifice is complete. God's people owe not one penny more of the debt that they owed. Victory has come entirely by the plan that God established. A path has been made into the very presence of the Holy of Holies. You have answered me. It is finished. And therefore, we trusting in Jesus, we are able to stand confident Because in Christ, we have triumphed over the struggle of sin and guilt. In Christ, we stand victorious over Satan and sin and death itself. In Christ, we live because Jesus lived for us and died on our behalf and rose up victorious. And therefore, He has answered us. It is finished. The suffering servant, Jesus, sought out God in the valley of the shadow of death. He endured the suffering, the supreme suffering that our sins had earned. And all the while, all the while serving and looking toward the faithful Father whom, who had sent Him. And because He did it all, and because the Father ultimately heard the prayer that His Son prayed, we, seeking God through faith in Jesus, we now have forgiveness reconciliation and peace with God that no one can take away. So let us praise our God for sending Jesus in whom our prayer for deliverance He has answered. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank You for You have done what we never could have done. You have delivered us in a way that that leaves us utterly astounded. Help us to receive that deliverance with confidence in Christ, with absolute utmost faith that He has left nothing undone that needed to be done, but has completed it all for us. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.